Well, it's a privilege to open God's Word again, and I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. Uh, We're looking at the 10 verses that we looked at last week. There was a lot there in terms of what was on my heart, I think, that I needed to share to get us to the point of the text, which we will finish off today. We've been answering accusations and talking about the accusations that have been leveled against Christ. To be a Christian is to be someone who stands for Christ. We are the body that is here while he is there. So people that would accuse Christ while he was here would be the same kind of people that would accuse us of these things because we're here standing for him. They accuse the master, they're going to accuse the servants. This was promised, this is par for the course for a Christian. And the accusation that was leveled against Christ was one of uh, great gravity and significance in our text, and that is to accuse Christ of operating by the power of Satan. Basically, in essence, it's someone who comes to the place in their heart where they're openly defiant against the Lord, saying, Jesus, you are a Satanist. What I attempted to do last week was to prove that this kind of sin, though it is so severe and damning to a soul and revealing in terms of how hard-hearted someone can become, is not just to be narrowly marginalized to the Pharisees who had the law, who were in time and space in close proximity to Jesus, who saw his miracles, who experienced all these things. And then with a hard-heartedness that would only come from a Pharisee, they say, you're doing this by the power of Beelzebul. And so we can then look at that and say, well, that's good for them. And I'm never going to be in proximity like that with Christ here on earth. And so, whoo, I'm out of the accountability of this passage. This is not something people do commonly, and this is not something I'm ever going to do, and so I'm going to just take a break and think about something else while the Word of God is preached. It's the very thing that you dare not do because this is a warning for all of us. Satan is the god of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. When he went into the garden, which was paradise, which was God's world for Adam and Eve, a sinless paradise. He entered into that. Adam and Eve fell to him and they, they bowed allegiance to him by following his false teaching. I tried to make the case last week for that. You can kind of catch up on all of that, but I see them as the first human Satan worshipers ever in history, at least at that point. And people are involved in Satan worship all the time, not necessarily on the scale that looks as dark and evil as can be portrayed externally. People are bowing their allegiance to Satan because they bow their allegiance to this world and the paganism therein. They give themselves to debauchery, to paganism, to the, the false gods of this world which are inhabited by Satan himself. And so to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to harden up in this satanic worship. So a text like this is warning all of us to not harden up to a place where 
you could commit the unpardonable sin. Say, what in the world is that? I mean, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is mentioned in our text. And Jesus is saying that if someone commits the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, they're not going to come back from it in this life or the life to come. This text is teaching us that there is a point of no return where someone can be delivered over to hell, even though they're still here on earth. That's dangerous talk. To be like Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition, it would have been better had you not been born. The reason that claim was made or that statement was made by Jesus over Judas is because he was committed already to hell, even though he was on earth. Satan had taken over his heart. There's a point at which grace stops for someone who's rejecting grace. An unpardonable sin. What does that mean? Um, How can we avoid it? That's the heart work you need to do as we open a text like this. Committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not to be itemized in a way where you say, well, that's just part of that dispensation or that operation, per, operational period of time where the Pharisees had such close proximity to the Lord that when they denied the Lord or, or impugned the Lord's power to being from Satan, that, that condemned them. No, they are the example of what we do not want to do in our lives as we are exposed to so many things that are of the power of the Holy Spirit, of the word of God, and the power that is manifest even amongst the body of Christ to reject him in view of his display of power today is to jeopardize your own soul. Today is the day of salvation. Wide road is the the road that many are on. Few find the narrow road. Those who are on the wide road that lead to destruction will plunge themselves into eternity. And once people are standing before the Lord, according to Matthew 7, no matter what excuses they give, I cast out demons, I prophesied in your name, I claimed you, I claimed you, I claimed you, I saw these miracles, these powers. No matter what they sort of trump up as as what's going to save them, Jesus says, no, depart from me, I never knew you. This is heart level examination that we're talking about. Does the Lord have your heart? Or are you in a process of hardening your heart to the Lord? It's one or the other. Whether in this life or the life to come, if your heart is not in Jesus' hands, then you are in danger of hellfire forever. I want to commit the unpardonable sin. We don't want to be given over to um, a reprobate mind. This is the doctrine of reprobation where God in this life can give you over to hell even though you're still alive. That's what we're talking about. That's the stakes of a text like this. And Satan is on his way to eternal hell. Satan is not in charge of hell. Jesus is. He's the Lord of hell. He made it. He's punishing people because they rejected him. He's punishing them in righteousness, and he will send the beast, the false prophet, Satan himself, into the lake of fire forever. 
And that's where those who do not repent likewise go. There are those who are, according to Galatians chapter 4, who have been severed from Christ. So the call is to instead persevere to the end. He who perseveres to the end shall be saved. The one who overcomes, the overcomers of revelation, those who are truly running the race as true, genuine Christians, those are the people who finish. They don't apostatize. They don't walk away. They don't deny the faith. They don't harden their hearts. They don't let themselves go. They're truly saved, truly Christians. And this is the text to call us to account, to see this not as a minimalist doctrine, but a maximalist doctrine. This is a maximalist application. This is something that we all need to see and understand and So Jesus allowed himself to be called a Satanist by the Pharisees to warn us in, what what year is it, 2022? I mean, when Anchorage, Alaska, we're supposed to take this account to our hearts and say, I don't want to be a Pharisee. How do I not be a Pharisee? How do I not commit a sin that is called in theological circles, the unpardonable sin? How do I not commit? How do I guard myself from committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? This is the fourth accusation. This is part five in the series, but it's the fourth accusation. He's saying, Jesus, you're a Satanist. You've been insubordinate. You're this rebel. You're this pagan. And now the accusation, you're a Satanist. It's ramping up as the the accusations seem to dig deeper and darker down. Um, the, The outline is three steps towards committing the unpardonable sin. Three steps toward committing the unpardonable sin. The first step, as we went through last time, is to lead others astray or to divide others from Christ. Satan's always dividing. And the Pharisees are dividing. They're dividing the crowds. Jesus performs a miracle, and they want to intervene and say, that can't be of God. He's not the Messiah. And it begins with him reviving this man. It begins with a revival. Look at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Probably deaf and dumb. He couldn't speak or hear, probably. He was blind and mute. We know that. He was demon-oppressed, and Jesus healed him. It was irrefutable. It was uncontestable. It was complete. It was immediate. And so the crowds are amazed. Their response is palpable. They have a reaction. Verse 23, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Can this be the carpenter's son? Can this be the Messiah? Let's check the records. Is this really him? Because they're open, you have a redirection, a a movement, an intervention that is waged in the next verse, verse 24. And when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out Demons. It's only by Beelzebul. It's a redirection. They question not the miracle. They question the source of the miracle. This has to be power from somewhere, and it can't be from God. It has to be from Satan. Beelzebul is the pagan idol god that came out of the the five cities of the Philistines. Ekron is one of them, and it's the you know it's the label that Jesus um, would be being labeled as the. You know, the Lord of the dead, the Lord of the flies, the Lord of dung. It's a terrible title to give Jesus, but it's saying that he is Satan. 
saying that his power is satanic. It's saying that Jesus had done a deal with the devil. Because he had done a deal with the devil, he had the power to do what he did. That's what the Pharisees are saying, and that's their state of heart at this point in time and space. Not all Pharisees went to hell. Nicodemus was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, remember, Nicodemus was the teacher of the land. Paul, I should say, was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. You have Pharisees who get saved, but these are not one of those. They're using divisive measures to counter Christ. Doctrines of demons, false teaching, denials, lies to divide. And so if you want to go on the road of perdition, if you want to take steps in terms of the impartable sin, if you want your heart to harden, be divisive. Be divisive. Divide people. Hurt people. Confuse people. That's what Satan does in the church. I've seen it over and over and over and over and over again in my pastoral ministry experience. From age 26 to 50 now, I've been an elder in two different churches, but in perpetuity, basically. And that's what harms the church is division, gossip, false teaching, twisting the truth, creating a seed of doubt. That's how Satan works. It's what he does. And that's why leaders have to be able to refute false doctrine. That's, it's protecting the unity of the church. People, why do people create false doctrine? It's to cover sin. Just know that. Whenever someone changes the gospel even a little bit or tweaks it, um, they're doing it to hide sin. It's like covers or blankets being pulled over sin. Um, accuse the process. Why do we have church membership? Um, do we really believe in eldership? Um, you know, what, what does it mean to be submissive to a church? All those things, when those things are tested, that is... Um, People pulling up the covers over their sin. Always. In my experience, always. It's not that elders shouldn't be confronted. There are ways to do that with two witnesses. And elders always need to be entreatable and open and, you know, give care with the word of God and give an audience for that. There's no problem there. But just know Satan is alive and well, and that's what he does. He attacks from the inside to uh, blow up churches, to blow up the witness of the gospel that can keep people out of hell. That's the whole point. Don't follow Satan to hell. Second, you not, only, you not only lead others astray, be divisive, but secondly, you live in denial. That's verses 25 to 30, live in denial. And the living in denial point is um, built on Christ's six rebuttals. He wants to wake people up. Shake awake people who are living in denial. They're living in the malaise of of the world going, well, is he Messiah? Is he not? I'm not sure. Uh, It sure looks powerful today. The church seems powerful, but, you know, is, is the gospel really real? Is the Bible real? Does the truth really matter at all? And Jesus is going, I want to rebut this divisive measure with six rebuttals to wake people up so they will not live in denial begins in verse 25, knowing their thoughts. He said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. It's illogical for you to believe that. Then he says, and if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will the kingdom, his kingdom stand? He says, it's implausible. It's not going to happen. 
the, the, for Satan to attack himself, to beat himself up, for him to um, give me power to, to take out demon oppression, for him to do that is a house of cards with his kingdom, and he wouldn't do that. So he's rebutting. He's, he's basically flying in the face of what is illogical and, and what is implausible. And then thirdly, it's incompatible. Verse 27, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, if I'm empowered by Satan... By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. If what I'm doing is wrong, then what are these guys doing over here? You know, I, their version of casting out demons compared to my version of casting out demons is 180 out from each other. So test it. See who really stands in truth here. And then fourthly, it's in congruent verse 28 by but if it is by the spirit of god i cast out demons he turns the argument positive here with this fourth um, rebuttal if i cast out demons then the kingdom of god has come upon you i'm here the kingdom of god is here their deepest fears would be realized if i'm not a satanist let me just flip the script then the messiah is here He's going, I'm right here. I'm right here. You have to contend with Jesus. Don't live in denial. I'm right here. And that, he's doing it probably in one sense to separate the Pharisees' assault from the crowds to say, believe on me. You started to. Now see me for who I am. People live in denial. Verse 29 says, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder the house. He's saying, don't deny the power of what you just saw. It would be ineffective. It would be an ineffective thing to say I was from the power of Satan. Did you see the demonstration of power where I cast out this demon? A lot of people think that they have the privilege to cast demons out or speak the name of Jesus like a magic word and take power over demonic activities and realms. But... That's not the way to approach Satan or his demons. It is not. Just by speaking the name Jesus, which is basically like saying Joshua in our modern day vernacular, saying Joshua or saying Jesus does nothing to send demons away. Um, In Philippians chapters um, 2, 3, 4, you have this, this picture of humility That in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the glorious picture of when everything comes to a culmination in eternity where Jesus is exalted as Lord. What's the name of Jesus? Lord, curios. He is, it's his lordship that's on display. And as he is exalted, every knee will bow on earth. Under, under the earth, in heaven, and every tongue will confess, even those in hell, you are Lord. It's the Lordship of Christ that is on display. And so we should not cavalierly take on demons. We should resist the devil and he will flee for us. We should raise up the shield of faith and the armor of God. We should, we should fight the good fight of faith, destroying speculations and everything raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're bringing things under truth, bringing things under the lordship of Christ, testing the spirits. Philippi, I mean, First John chapter 4, I think it is, or 5, tests the spirits. You're testing false teachings. You're avoiding doctrines of demons. You're 
guarding your mind from being twisted up by Satan. Even um, the angel that uh, I think it was Gabriel in, um, I think it's Second Peter or Jude. I mean, when he was... Um, and he was in spiritual warfare in an invisible realm with Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. You can check that out because they were, they were arguing over the body of Moses. And even, even that angel, that archangel is going, the Lord rebuke you. I'm not saying that we fear Satan. Greater is he who is in us than he is in the world. But we respect the power of what he's doing and how he's loosed and how he's demonstrably powerful. And we, we call people to the lordship of Christ. So again, the power of God was on display as if Jesus had, had broken into a home and bound the strong man. And then verse 30, the last rebuttal, number six, not only ineffective, it's incurable. This is the rebuttal. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus, by rebuking and calling out that demon, casting out that demon and delivering this man, shows a display of divine demarcation between those who are gatherers, those who are in Christ, and those who are scatterers, those who are dividing people from Christ. And he's saying, that's what's going on. I'm rebutting, I'm rebuking, I'm arguing against this accusation by saying that I am the true Messiah. You're either for me or you're against me. You're either gathering or you are scattering. So he's demonstrating that no one should deny the power of Jesus. As you sit here, you should not deny the power of Jesus. You should not deny his divine accountability in this moment. Please do not. Please do not. It is damning to do so. It is heart-hardening to deny Jesus. Don't be excited about me. Don't be excited about my presentation. Be excited about Jesus. The Lord Jesus is on display. Through the power of the gospel, through the ministry of the word of God, through the Holy Spirit working in your hearts, Jesus is alive. And he is real and he is here. And to be divisive is to be, that is to be following satanic power. To be denying, that is following Satan on the road to perdition, to hell. So instead, be warned to acknowledge Jesus. And the third point of this bigger outline is don't be divisive. Don't be denying. And don't let yourself go. Don't be damning your soul to hell. Don't do that. That's verses 31 and 32. Don't let yourself go. Don't do it. Why? Because Jesus' point is packed in these two verses. It begins with therefore. So he's summarizing, saying everything that just happened, all of this is a living illustration for me to make this point. Therefore, I tell you, it means the authority of Jesus Christ on his own authority, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, what is it? That's the question. How do we avoid it? Well, you don't let yourself go. Um, 
Verse 31 has just a unique pivot point in it that I don't want you to miss. I think it's so important for you to see what's here. Every sin, listen, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. That's sort of section one of this verse. That's the widest possible um, picture of grace that Jesus could display. Every single sin. And he includes blasphemy. Every sin, everything you could ever do can be forgiven. Even blasphemy. Blasphemy is speaking words. It's taking the Lord's name in vain. It's, it's hard-hearted words that are, that are words that are exposing the hardness of your heart. Out of the mouth proceed the things of the heart, right? So if your heart is that hardened where you are cursing Christ or you're attributing Christ's power to being Satan-empowered, that, that's exposing a state of heart. And he's saying, look, every sin, even blaspheming, can be forgiven. Will be forgiven, actually. But, so, so there's an incredible... Um, second half of this verse that you don't want to miss. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So there's the wideness of grace for anyone who's willing to be soft and repent. But if you're unwilling to be soft and repent of your sin, even in this lifetime, before you die, you could be given over to committing a sin a state of heart that is under the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit where you are given over and you are unredeemable at this point in your life. You say, whoa, how is that possible? How bad could somebody be and still be forgiven? Well, any sin can be forgiven without qualification except this qualification. If you go to the point where you are committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if you get there, we're not talking about walking on eggshells. Uh, did I say it? Did I go too far? Did I, did, I, did I step over the line? Am I irredeemable? That's not what Jesus is teaching here. He's saying, if you let yourself go to a state of hard-heartedness, you can cross a line in your heart where God says, I'm now going to lift my hand of grace off of you. Time is up and I'm giving you over. That's what this verse is describing. You say, well, how can I understand this? Well, the Old Testament gives a window into um, this sin and what happens to you. In the Old Testament, I'm beginning to more and more see that these Old Testament illustrations that happen where you're under, like if you're an Israelite, you're under a covenant community, you're under a theonomic government, a God government. That was the legitimate God nation. God national government was Israel. And it was God's law that put on display in physical reality, physical governance. It's putting on display what's happening in heaven's court. It's the seen world, the visible physical world of Israel that puts on display what's happening in the unseen world. So that's a story in Leviticus chapter 24 talks about somebody who was put outside of Israel, put outside of the camp because he blasphemed sort of a past tense window into eternal judgment, what it looks like. 
Look at verse 10, Leviticus 24. Now an Israelite's, Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelites, or the Israelite woman's son, blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. They put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then Moses spoke to, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp the one who is cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him and speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Um, This is a picture of judgment. It's a physical picture under that theonomic government. We're, We're not under a governance like that. We don't do those things in the church. We don't physically stone people in the church. It was how they... Um, it's how they executed judgment. And so the scenario is you have a man who was a, born of a Israelite mother whose father was a pagan Egyptian, and he got into a fight. We got into some kind of fight with a, another Israelite, with an Israelite. And then he must have lost the fight. And so what he did is he got very angry and hard-hearted, and out of his heart came blasphemy, and he cursed God publicly in that society, in that time. And so then he was taken to court. He was incarcerated, taken to court. And Moses and probably the leadership fought through what to do with this man. And so they're assessing this person's heart. And ultimately their assessment was his heart is so hardened that he needs to die. It wasn't just that he spoke the word. It was that was the manifestation of his blasphemous heart that was hard-hearted And he became the example of what not to do and not to let your heart go to that level. And he was executed. And I think it's a picture of judgment. If you fast forward to the book of Revelation and kind of go to the future window of this, you see in Revelation 13, 5, and the beast was given a mouth utterly haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It was time fused. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. Again, a picture of utter ultimate evil. What does it look like? It looks like someone who's blaspheming, speaking words against Christ. That's in the end. What about the present? The present day window of what happens in the church age and right now for us is 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 3. Turn there in your Bibles. Look here. It says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's always a confusing text for me because I always thought, well, as a believer, you could actually speak the words, Jesus is accursed. Or as an unbeliever, you could say the words, Jesus is Lord, 
Is that determinative for where you're going to spend eternity or whether you're a Christian or not? Well, the point is we're not talking about just what you actually say. We're talking about your state of heart. And in the church at Corinth, it was a paganized um, society. And the society was impacting the church because the converts were coming out of a pagan society and they were in the church. And while they were in the church, some of their pagan practices followed them there. The issue of pornography today is rampant. The pornography of the Corinthian age was viewing the images of idols. They would create statues and they would fall down before these images and they would be part of raves and they would be part of parties and sexual immoralities together. And while they were doing that, some of that paganism was happening in the church where people were claiming to be Christians, but they were duplicitously involved in that paganism. And they're saying Jesus is Lord, but they're part of that paganism at the same time. And Paul is calling their bluff, saying you can't have it both ways. You can't with your life and your actions and your, your paganism say Jesus is Lord. You can't do that. You're not bowed. You're not genuinely confessing Jesus as Lord if that is your life pattern and lifestyle. You're actually saying Jesus is accursed instead of saying Jesus is Lord by the Holy Spirit. You come out from that world. You come out and be separate. Then you say it by the Holy Spirit. You say, well, people curse God all the time, don't they? Are they all going to hell? Oh my, right? Well, a lot of people are acting ignorantly in unbelief. Remember Paul, he said in 1 Timothy 1.13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That phrase, ignorantly in unbelief, just means he had not yet been given over to the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. He had not yet hardened up to a level. You say, how hard was Paul? Paul was a serial killer of Christians. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a hard-hearted legalistic Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was gone, yet he wasn't. Isn't that incredible? It's Peter denying Christ with words, cursing Christ three times, restored, repented, came back. I mean, it's the hard medicine of 1 Corinthians that says you're acting duplicitously, you're hiding your sin, come into the light that brings people out of this denial of Jesus, this malaise, right? Where they're damning themselves to hell, letting themselves go. It's like the defibrillator hits the chest and it's like, I'm alive. Rescue me, unshackle me from the vice grip of my own sin. Jesus is Lord. I've got to curse you anymore with this duplicitous life. Jesus is Lord, and I say it by the Holy Spirit. That's what we're talking about. But if you don't come out of that, then you are headed toward committing the unpardonable sin. Luke 23, 34. It's amazing. When Jesus was on the cross, people were cursing him. Do you remember that? They were blaspheming Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them. Why? Because they know not what they do. They're not all the way gone yet. They still can be forgiven. Please forgive them. That's his prayer. That's his prayer for you. Be forgiven. Luke eleven nineteen. 19. 
is the parallel text to what happened here in Matthew 12. It says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I want you just to hear that phrase. It's what he said in Luke that isn't repeated here in Matthew, but it's synchronizing to say, he cast out that demon by the finger of God. R.C. Sproul, in his helpful commentary, said the finger of God is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Exposure to the Holy Spirit is how people are saved or how people are repelled from Jesus. They're either drawn or they are hardened. You either come into the kingdom or you are repelled out of the kingdom. The higher the exposure to the Holy Spirit, the more dangerous it is to reject Jesus Christ. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews talks about this. It warns against rejecting Jesus. Hebrews 2, be warned not to drift away. Hebrews 6, one of the most complex passages in all of the scripture. Unless you understand this doctrine, listen what it says. For it's impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. What does this mean? It simply means that if you're exposed to the power of God in church, you're exposed to the pure, piercing, penetrating, truth-saving gospel of Jesus Christ, and you go, "Eh, I'm blasé on that. I got it. Checkbox that. I can pass the Bible quiz or Bible test, I'm fine. If you do that and you keep doing that, you'll come to a state of hard-heartedness where it becomes impossible for you to be renewed to repentance because it's shameful to prop Jesus up one more time for you and it's contemptuous to do it. It's trotting over the Son of God. It's stepping on Jesus like he's a mud puddle. And there's a certain point at which in your lifetime where God will say enough is enough. Hebrews 10, 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved to the one who has spurned the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? A man-centeredness approach will say, well, I just want to make sure I don't step over the line and I'm going to just, you know, try to dig myself out. God-centeredness goes, Lord, keep me soft. I remember I was a brand new master seminary student in Southern California, and I was down there, and I was 22 years old and single and kind of terrified to go into pastoral training on that level. The, the air was thin and the bar was high, and I was nervous to start my master's degree. And I was newly hired at the college down the street and was walking into a little bank in this little town called New Hall and was you know, setting up a bank account just as a single young man. And I was, at, at that time, just kind of terrified, just like examining my heart. I mean, I was qualified and ready, but I was 22 and young and just had some doubts about the whole thing. And the dean of the seminary, um, Dick Mayhew, Richard Mayhew, um, his wife, B was standing in line in front of me at the bank. And she's this mother, motherly person and nice and it was a little bit safer for me to talk to B than to talk to Dr. Mayhew, you know, former like naval commander Mayhew. And so I'm talking to B and I'm like, I'm going B, hi, I'm Jeff and I'm starting the seminary and I'm brand new. And 
Um, and she's just looking at me. And I said, you know, I've, I've just got some doubts. I mean, am I qualified? You know, can I do this? Can I go into this, this mission of study? And, and I'm nervous about it. And she said, well, it's good that you're nervous. It's good that you're concerned. Because if you weren't concerned about your qualifications, then I would be concerned about your qualifications. She mothered me. But that's, that's what you need to hear. If you're unconcerned about Jesus, if you're unconcerned about the state of your soul and whether you are headed down a wrong path, then I'm worried about you. But if you are concerned and you are circumspect and you are humble and soft, then I'm less concerned, right? Softness is the relief. Softness is where you are comforted by the Holy Spirit and affirmed as a Christian. Hard-heartedness is where you're in danger. It's where you become a modern-day Judas where you're telling yourself you're fine when you're really not. 1 Corinthians 5 is such a powerful verse, I mean, section of Scripture. I won't go into it too much, but there was a man who was in the church who was called a so-called brother. He, was, he had um, committed incestuous relations um, with, with his family, and it was within the church, and it was known. The, the, the bad part about that sin, as bad as that sin is of sexual immorality within a family, the, the worst part about that sin is that it was known by the church, and the church was doing nothing about it. They're going, we're blasé about this. We don't care. And Paul rebukes that and says, you need to deliver such a one over to Satan. And what does he mean by that? 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5, he says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul pulled no punches over the sins that send someone to hell, denying someone's sin, denying their state of soul, being unwilling to discipline somebody, to to say, we don't know if you're a Christian. We're going to excuse you from the blessings of the church. We're going to put you in the world with Satan right now and hope that you come to your senses like the prodigal son and run back. That's the ministry of restoration. That's the ministry of discipline. That's why we have membership in the church where you are saying with a statement and commitment that I'm under the eldership of the church because you don't want your sin to harden your heart and you to find out that you never were really a Christian in the first place. We're called to, to ongoingly examine ourselves. Why? To see if we're in the faith. The Bible doesn't say examine that seven-year-old experience where you had an altar call and cried real big and that's why I'm saved. Examine my picture of my camp baptism experience that I had and that's what I'm holding on to. That's bunk and baloney. We're saved because the Lord Jesus lives in us and we can examine ourselves and say past, present, and where I'm going in the future, I see the fruit of the Holy Spirit and I believe the true doctrine of the gospel and I'm saved, then I know I'm saved. And he's preserving that salvation all the way to eternity. That's what we have in the church. That's why you come into a solid church. It's why you need to be here. The stakes are that high. Don't commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit by letting yourself go. Look at verse 32. And whoever speaks the word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. You can literally blaspheme Jesus and be soft-hearted and repent of that sin and you'll be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. 
either in this age or the age to come. I'll finish with a illustration that I think is appropriately sober to our text. During World War II, an American naval force in the North Atlantic was engaged in heavy battle with enemy ships and submarines on an exceptionally dark night. Six planes took off from the carrier to search out those targets. But while they were in the air, a total blackout was ordered for the carrier in order to protect it from attack. Without lights on the carrier's deck, the six planes could not possibly land. And they were made, and they made a radio request for the lights to be turned on just long enough for them to come in. But because the entire carrier with its several thousand men, as well as all the other planes and equipment would have been in jeopardy, no lights were permitted. When the six planes ran out of fuel, they had to ditch in the freezing water. All the crew members perished into eternity. There comes a time when God's going to turn the lights out. It'll be the point of no return. May it never be for any one of us or anyone that we love to come to that place. We pray for hearts to be soft. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. In a favorable time, I listen to you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation.